RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Dr. David Bell is a public health physician with global experience, born and educated in Australia. He's worked at various organizations across the Tasman, the United Kingdom, Europe, including World Health Organization, the WHO in Geneva, Switzerland. His research experience and interest in technology development gives him a unique understanding, I'm reading from the bio here, of potential solutions for the most pressing public health challenges. Dr. Bell joins us from Texas, USA. He's from Australia. Welcome, David Bell. Thanks for giving us some time on Reality Check Radio. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be here. (laughs) Nice to have you. What part of Australia are you from? Just curious. Uh, Originally from Victoria. Grew up in southeast of Melbourne, about on the coast, and then um, lived in Brisbane and up in Catherine for a few years in Northern oh, Territory. Yeah. But I, I left about 2002, 21 years ago, I guess. Um, so I was in World Health Organization in the Philippines for seven or eight years, and then in Geneva, and in a couple of organizations, another organization, Geneva Foundation for Diagnostics. And then I, I yeah, I moved to the US for a job um, in a Gates lab in Bellevue near Seattle. You say Gates? Um, Gates, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's not the foundation, but it was a development lab that he ran. And, yeah, now I, I work in biotech. I moved down to Texas with the family about a year ago um, to escape fascism, essentially. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, this is so I'm consulting in, in biotech and global health. When you look back to the home country, what do you make of it now? You obviously would have been following developments there as you, you could along the way, particularly Victoria. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm surprised and, you know, obviously disappointed in what's happened. Um, but, yeah, it's certainly interesting psychologically. Um, I, you know, I never would have believed this would happen and most of the people I knew there would never have believed it would have happened, but now they're, I think they're going along with it. Um, so I, it's an interesting contrast because living in the US has been interesting because the country is really split and you've got a lot of the country doing what Victoria did and thinking there's an existential crisis, everyone's going to die unless they wear a mask. And you've got another half of the country not doing anything and having exactly the same outcomes <laughs> in terms of COVID. So... Yeah, it's been an interesting experiment, and um, yeah, um, I think you know we, we're talking earlier, but I think um, a lot of it, you know, Australia, they've there's this amazing trust in government, and you know, which I had when I was there. You just assume, you know, the government is there for your good. They're decent people. They always do the right thing. The media will always do the right thing. The ABC or, you know, New Zealand Broadcasting Commission will always do the right thing. They're the objective, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's never been a like a civil war or a war of independence or, you know, mass slavery or, or the sort of oppression we've had here, we, you know, with the exceptions of Indigenous populations in both countries, but they're small minorities, unfortunately, and... The vast majority of people in these countries have never, you know, who've grown up there, have never had to fight and they've not got any folk memory of that. So I think, uh, you know, they haven't experienced fascism or communism. Um, when we were up in Washington State, this started in 2020, the people I knew from Eastern Europe or from other communist regimes, so they immediately clicked 
with the, the messaging of what was going on. Um, I, I think, you know, you probably find similar in Australia and New Zealand, people from Eastern Europe and so on, but the vast majority of people, I think they have no idea what's going on around them. That's what happens when you're wrapped in cotton wool. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you, yeah, you're wrapped in cotton wool and yeah, you just have this trust that people do the right thing. Um, and unfortunately, <clears throat> people often won't, especially <laughs> if they can make money out of doing the wrong thing, then they'll do the wrong thing. So that's what's happened. I suspect there's a lot of follow the money in, in what we're about to talk about, or am I being, am I jumping ahead a bit? No, I mean, to me, yeah, that's both. I mean, people read all sorts of things into it, but I think there's lots of follow the money and, you know, the people who are getting the money are these huge corporations who have uh, histories of the largest um, criminal, you know, um, convictions for fraud in, in history. So that's who we're trusting, you know, the Pfizer's and the Merck's and so on. Um, they're companies that have a track record of lying about the studies, lying about the products and being found out and fined for it, but making more money than they're in fine. So just an aside, isn't the definition of fascism, the um, totalitarian sort of <clears throat> association of government and very large. Yeah. Business? Corporate authoritarianism. That's what yeah. one of Mussolini's definitions was corporate authoritarianism. Now, the other interesting thing is which people, I mean, people think fascism is far right. Um, which appeared in, I know it appeared in the Webster Dictionary only in the 1950s. Um, before that, it was just, you know, corporate authoritarianism, et cetera. But Mussolini and Hitler had, it's not irrelevant, had a history of being in the left. They were socialists. Politics. Or Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. Nazis are National Socialist Workers' Party. So, and you know, I think, you know, there's, some, there's quite a similar... You're seeing quite a similar thing, I think, in people that call themselves left in politics here and in Australia and New Zealand that, you know, that they have these left ideals, but then they, they come to think that they're, they're absolutely right mm. in their ideals and therefore any means is justified to impose those righteous ideas on others and that's where you end up being a fascist. And I think it's fair to say we've been seeing elements of that. It hasn't gone full-blown, you know, where we're under no. physical, well, maybe we have been under physical threat uh, one way or another. But, uh, okay, so um, interesting hearing about, um, you know, the, a brief overview of your background. So the WHO, I think many people knew what that was. You, you know, you used to hear it every now and then in news bulletins and things yeah. like that. Now we... We really know that the WHO is there and, you know, they have, um, well, yeah, a lot of power in, in the world. You've been on the inside of it. First question, are they a force for good? Yeah, so there's not a simple answer to that. And I think originally they were, and for most of their history, I think they have been. The world would be worse off without them. Hmm. Um, I think to me, at the, for the last few years, I think they've been the net Harm. They've been a net negative, but that doesn't mean in some countries they're not they don't do a good job. You know, it's a huge organisation that you know it promotes lockdown, impoverishment, and wealth concentration through COVID policies. But it also 
um, does a lot of work in, you know, reducing malaria in helping countries to get technical capacity around those sorts of things, tuberculosis, um, HIV, et cetera. So, and it has made big inroads in, or it had up to 2020 in, in those diseases. Um, there are countries that have very poor technical capacity in health and the WHO country office there forms an interest, forms an important part of, uh, you know, their essentially support for their Ministry of Health. And I know WHO people who, you know, essentially run disease programs in some countries because there isn't local capacity and do a good job. So, you know, the, the, there are places where if you look out the WHO, they'd be worse off. But I think globally over the last few years, um, essentially WHO have abandoned, their principles abandoned the way they used to work and they're, they're working for corporate sponsors and there's a story behind that, how the funding has changed. So it's a very different organisation than it was a decade or two ago. So that the funding and the change you mentioned, is that really the, the where the, the switch was flipped between you know, doing a, doing all those good worthy things, and what we have come to experience, well through them from them, um, in the last few years, again yeah. follow the money, is it? I think so. Uh, when they when they started in 1946, a constitution was written, and you know, it was 56 or something countries. There's now about 194, but that they were. Uh, most of, nearly all of their funds, about eighty percent or so, I think, was um, they call it core funding. And countries were assessed based on their GDP. Rich countries give more, poor countries give less, and they give it to WHO. And WHO, with its you know, technical expertise that you hope they will have, would use that funding for where they thought they could have the best impact, which is essentially high burden infectious diseases for most of their life. Um, and, and it was based on disease burdens. You know, most people die of, say, TB, malaria, diarrhea in kids, et cetera, pneumonia. So that's where they concentrate. Uh, in, so two things have changed. One, that funding has become much more, they call it specified funding. So 80% of their funding now is more than 80% is specified, which means the country gives funding to the WHO to, you know, do this program in this place for these years, even employ these people to do it, have these meetings, et cetera. So they control what the funding, what the WHO does. And the other big change is this private money, which has come in. So the Gates Foundation is now within their top three funders, arguably maybe their biggest one, indirectly, indirectly. Um And virtually all of their funding is the same. It's specified funding. So they give funding to WHO to do a certain thing somewhere. So, and there's corporate sponsorship and so on doing the same. And, you know, I was in WHO when this was sort of getting off the ground and the idea of public-private partnerships and you think, gee, more money is a good thing. You know, these these people and these um, corporations are giving money for the greater good, you know, put some back in the community. They, you forget or you you choose to forget that, you know, the, the, these corporations and individuals in the end, certainly the corporations, they have to make a profit for their shareholders. They can't give away their shareholders' money. So they're going to give money if they think they get, they're going to be better off themselves by doing so. So you get this increased money which from these private partner, public partnerships, and it's within WHO but also other organisations. 
And it seems a good idea because there's more money, but you end up, the organisation ends up working for these people because they're saying where this money will be used. And the you know, the staff in the organisation, they know their salary is coming from, you know, this source or that source, and that if they don't do X, then the funder won't give it next year. So the WHO has become, to a large extent, just a, an organisation that does other people's bidding. And we've seen that with COVID where they're chasing a disease that compared to other major diseases has a tiny impact on health. Uh, yeah, it does. It's, you know, mm. mortality of 0.15% or so. <laughs> and, and, and in old people, the average age of death is about 75 to 80. So mm. very little impact on life years. You know, the average person who dies from malaria is under five years of age. Wow. They lose 75 years and someone with COVID on average loses about two. So, you know, from a disease burden point of view, what they're doing makes no sense. But from the point of view of making a profit for these individuals, as we've seen, and for the corporations who are sponsoring them, it makes all sorts of sense. You've mentioned Gates's name twice now, and uh, and a lot is said about him. Have, have you what, what sort of experience? Have you had any direct experience of of working w- with this individual? And if so, what are your impressions of him? Because it's hard to get a fix on on Bill Gates, his motivations. Um, you know uh, what, what he's trying to do. Is he I mean, he's rich enough already. You would have thought if it's it's all about money. What what do you think drives? Maybe you don't know, but if you do, what do you think drives him? Well, I mean, I mention him because he is you know the Gates Foundation is the largest funder. Um, but uh, I I don't you know I don't think it helps to dig into individuals in this. There's a I mean, Bill Gates is able to do what he's doing because. We have a society that allows individuals to accumulate enormous amounts of wealth, you know, the wealth of whole countries, and he's not the only individual. You know, and you could argue, uh, I mean, certainly the money from the Gates Foundation has done some good. It's not, you know, I, I think that there are ways that it's doing harm, but it's certainly done some good as well. And so it's complicated, you know, people in the foundation are trying to do the right thing as well. So all, all this is complicated. But in the end, what matters is that you've got, individuals who for good or bad intentions have the power to direct the health of whole countries now and they're doing that and directing the health policy of whole countries so the WHO is based on decolonization human rights that community-based control of health etc we've moved with these public-private partnerships to the opposite where we have, you know, we're back to colonial days, essentially, where we have very wealthy individuals and very wealthy corporations directing the health of the world. And even if they mean well, um, they have no idea what the priorities of a mother in Burkina Faso is or, a, a, you know, someone in New Zealand um, because they have no experience of where those people are. They don't know those communities. They don't know the local culture, the local priorities. So it's even if these people mean well, it's completely inappropriate to have them 
formulating health policy, but that is what is happening. And we've seen in COVID, and uh, you know, we had, you know, I mean, software entrepreneurs and you know, heads of Facebook and whatever, essentially pushing the whole thing about lockdowns and masks and all the rest of it, which is completely against what was WHO policy pandemics. So 2019, WHO put out their pandemic influenza guidelines where they say specifically in a pandemic and in an epidemic, do not close borders, do not quarantine healthy people. You know, you may close a you have business closes for seven to 10 days maximum because after that you're going to be doing more harm than good. So all this is laid out in writing by WHO, but you can, so, you know, something made them change. I think it's the direction, you know, the, the, the sponsorship essentially, which is directing them. Sponsorship to, sounds like a sport sort of thing. Well, it is. Oh, well, that's what it is. It is. They're sponsoring WHO. And, you know, if corporate drug companies and so on, they're sponsoring WHO to, to improve their profits and selling drugs. So they're not going to, put money into just training more health workers in some, you know, Af- sub-Saharan African country, they're going to put money into selling vaccines and mm. other medicines. So otherwise they'd be stupid that they have to do this for their shareholders, but it's nothing to do with public health. Going back a couple of years when Trump was still in, and I think he pulled the funding from WHO, it was what, $800 million yeah. or something like that. And the fact, well, Everyone, I think, thinks that it's most likely this thing came out of the the lab, which Mm. (laughs) just down the road from the wet market, uh, coincidentally. And and there was talk about, you know, Chinese influence over the the head of the WHO. Should we be thinking about China in that or was that just a a bit of a misdirection play at the time? Um. Well, we should be thinking about individual countries. Yeah, I mean, the WHO, so, yeah, it, it's one country, one vote, essentially. Um, but obviously, if you're a country like China or, you know, the US or something, you can influence a lot of other countries to mm. vote for the one you want for when you get in the Director General, for instance, because, you know, you vote for the one that we would like and we will give you a good deal on the next loan or something. So, and... and yeah, so, yeah, there is a huge influence of certain countries. Now, you can argue that China should have a big influence because China is 1.4 billion people yeah, or 1.3, whatever. So, you know, it's a lot of people. They should have some say. And that's fine if you've just got an organisation that is you know, naming diseases and giving a bit of technical support when it's asked, et cetera. But it makes no sense for an organisation that is then telling people what to do and closing borders and et cetera, because then you've got essentially an organisation directed by countries that are authoritarian regimes telling countries that are supposedly democracies what to do with their own people. And, you know, then you're not a democracy. So it, it, it's fine if WHO is just an advisory organisation, but it, if WHO is, as these, the treaty and the amendments to the international health regulations are changing it into, um, if it's an organisation that directs our people and essentially tells people what to do regarding their healthcare, then it's, it's anathema to have the structure that they have. I picked up on COVAX. I think that's uh, what uh, a WHO 
program for access to what, yeah. COVID-19 vaccines or all vaccines it's, in general? It's COVID-19 vaccines for low- and middle-income countries. Right. Okay. Um, and what caught my eye was the slogan, no one is safe until everyone is safe. Yeah. And the reason I picked up on that is because that's kind of the foundation for the narrative of persuasion for, you know, safe and effective. Everyone, 95% was the target here to take um, this vaccine. Yeah. And can we call it a vaccine? We could talk about that. Um, but mm. does that make any sense, that, uh, that slogan? No, no. None at all. And, and the, the slogan, it's not just WHO, it's a WHO slogan, but, you know, UNICEF's got on their website Gavi, which is a vaccine alliance, CEPI, which is this organisation for pandemics, welcome trusts, et cetera. They, they all have this, um, no one is safe until everyone is safe. So you can pull it apart a bit. You know, it's a, it's nonsensical. If um no, it sounds good, though. I mean, it's, it sounds oh. it sounds good until you stop and actually use your brain. And so, you know, if no one is safe until everyone is safe, that means the vaccine doesn't protect you. Because if the vaccine protects you, then you're safe as soon as you're vaccinated. You don't need all the others vaccinated. Oh, what does it matter? You're 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 safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it also. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, I'm mean, not suggesting the vaccine works or doesn't work, but they claim it works. They claim it protects you from severe disease. Therefore, why aren't you safe once you're vaccinated? So the, the slogan is basically saying the vaccine doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't protect you. It's code for it doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, it's so the problem, yeah, it's a completely empty slogan. And this is the slogan for their main health program, which tells you a lot about where the organisation is, you know, intellectually and from a public health point of view. But uh, COVAX is interesting. It's um, So it, the, the idea was to vaccinate 70% of the people in all these countries, like sub-Saharan African countries, et cetera. This is, it's the most expensive program they've ever done. The, the budget just to get two doses into Africans, which we know will then wear off in you know, X months, um, would cost about, they estimate, $10 billion, which is um, about three times the annual budget of WHO. But they, they, they put in seven or eight billion at least. And they knew when they did, they knew from, you know, pre, before Omicron. WHO did their own study, very large study in Africa of serology. They knew that 66% of people had positive antibody tests. So much more than two-thirds were already immune to COVID. Half the population is under, not under 20. So they're basically kids and teenagers who are, you know, one in a million, less than one in a million chance of dying from COVID. Less than 1% of the population is over 75, which is nearly everyone that dies from COVID. So... You've got a population that's intrinsically at almost zero risk. The figures were showing that. You know, the, the mortality in Africa is very, very low outside of a few countries like South Africa where people are older and fatter. Um, and they're already immune to the disease, yet you're going to spend $10 billion on vaccinating them with a vaccine that lasts a few months when they have deteriorating figures for malaria, TB, HIV, and so on, which are each of those diseases has a mortality in the first four months of COVID. Each of those diseases killed more than 10 times the number that died of COVID. 
in sub-Saharan mm. Africa. So, yeah. it, it, yeah, I mean, what the, the only explanation for this that I can see is that it is making truckloads of money for the sponsors of the organisation. It's, it's certainly not a public health intervention. It's interesting you mentioned Africa because very little has been said about the African experience during this in mm. any of our media, which would have been handy to know because, you know, you can kind of work out the risk reward, um, you know, parameters of that. Mm. Uh, I was just thinking that, um, that, that line, um, what did I have here? The uh, one I just mentioned, COVAX. No one is safe mm. until everyone is safe. That actually sounds like it's describing more of a business model. It's, it's a description of a business model. Yeah, it's certainly what you'd say if you wanted to just sell very large amounts of the commodity that makes them safe. Um, yeah, it is. And, yeah, and, it's a and, on, and repeat business, right? Because a yes, couple of months, yeah. and then you got to take another one. How many, factor oh. that into years? That's what hundreds of potential yeah. doses. Are, yeah. Oh yeah, I think what, Australia paid up front, or you know, ordered something like ten doses for every person in the population. Um, I don't know what they're going to do with that, but well, that's yeah. interesting because that was done quite a long time in advance, wasn't it? Yeah. How did they know? Oh, there's a lot of interesting things there. Uh, yeah, how did they know? How did they know it didn't work? Well, they did know because, I mean, Tony Fauci, who people know, um, wrote a paper a few months ago, co-wrote with two other authors, a paper that was published in Cell, which is a major journal, talking about the COVID vaccines and other vaccines for respiratory viruses and pointing out that vaccines for these are never going to work. Um that there was no expectation that the COVID vaccines would stop transmission. He goes into very good detail on why it's not going to work in this paper. Um, As if if the previous three years had never existed. But uh, of course they knew that it wasn't going to work because this is what you expect from a fast mutating virus. Um, So, yeah. So um, so they knew, they were buying in advance because they knew that the thing they were saying worked probably wouldn't work, well, wouldn't work, um, yet they were happy to spend. You have to ask yourself, and, and um, I've had quite a few people on this program, we've talked about this, and it seems to be the consensus is that uh, none of this is sort of like uh, malfeasance or malice or, or evil empire conspiracy. It's more that... You know, uh, well-meaning people who who are apparently very smart and well-qualified are just as susceptible to what we talked about earlier. You know, the government will never do us any any harm, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and and they were sort of captured by that. Do you think that's the case? Because the, the advanced planning would suggest that it's maybe a bit more cynical than that. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's a mixture. Um, I think there is some real advanced planning from a long time ago in the general direction of this, you know, mandated vaccination across the whole population is a way to print money and there's ways to do it with respiratory viruses. And, um, you know, so yeah, th- there were meetings where they have discussed, you know, how to do the behavioural psychology, et cetera, to get people living in fear so that they would take this and, the, you know, in the UK, the SAGE uh, advisors to the government, there's members of that who've come out and said that there was a deliberate uh, campaign of fear-mongering 
over mm. the population in order to get them to comply. Yeah, it's not what you do in a democracy. It's supposed to be anti-public health. Uh, you're trained not to ever do that. But this is what happened, and I, I think the people who are running. So I think yeah, a lot. There's two aspects to this. One is that the people who were instilling this fear on purpose were, I think, malfeasant. Um, but the second is that a lot it's a very effective techniques that they were using, and we saw that in the 1930s in Nazi Germany, and we saw what can happen in populations in the Balkans, and you know Yugoslavia broke up, and suddenly people were turning against their neighbours. So humans can do this if you put them in the right conditions, the right state of mind. Now, I have colleagues who are genuinely fearful of the virus, even though if they, you know if you if you sit down and look at the the numbers, it didn't make sense for them to be fearful. Um, so I think a lot of people were taken in by this um, behavioural psychology operation that was put in place. And, you know, most of the, the UK, mo- the, the highest number of profession on the UK SAGE were behavioural psychologists. They weren't immunologists or virologists. So Australia has a similar um, unit. So I assume New Zealand does. Um, I would imagine the US, yeah. etc. So well, that, that, is... that would explain the lockstep, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, there, there are these techniques. I mean, the World Economic Forum has had a big part in this. They're very open about that. They've been, I mean, they've been open about the fact that they are sponsoring people in Western cabinets, Western governments. And they're very open that they think they should, that they were intending to, and they did use COVID to push their own agendas, um, which were not public health. So uh, that explains a lot of this sort of lockstep um, because uh, they have a huge reach within government. So, yeah, I think that there's them and so and there's this fear factor, which, and there's the fact that, I mean, the media report clearly the main media, um, with respect to yourself, but the main the main media are bought, and they're bought directly in that um, there are people who've been pushing this, who are sponsoring them. The, the largest, a lot of Western countries now, the largest advertiser outside of governments is um, Pharma. And I've seen the montages of the American, you know, news programs, though. Oh, yeah. You know, even the, even the, I think exactly the, the same wording. Yeah, brought yeah, to you exactly by Pfizer. That. Yeah, brought to you by Pfizer. But they also, they have these, you know, this is a threat to democracy or something. They'll have exactly the same wording. Yeah. And the same no, stories. And there's actually sources for that because Reuters and AP actually produce a lot of the copy now for these. And they're, they're both owned by, or, Within their ownership is um, BlackRock and Vanguard, Vanguard you know, yeah. the big houses that also are the main owners of Pfizer and um, I think AstraZeneca and um, also Google, um, Facebook, New York Times, CNN, Time Warner, etc. They, they all share ownership. So you know, it's not surprising that you get lockstep. In a way, this is just business. Um, this is what you do if you owned all these companies. And you, you well, well, New Zealand has picked up on. on the video of our Prime Minister walking out of the Black Rock headquarters 
in New York on the last visit. No one asked her what she was doing there, and no one was curious. And why would the leader of a democratic country who's there, who's just representing the people, spend time in a place like that and not be open about why they're doing it? But this has been, you know, this has concerned me for for decades, actually, that the whole Davos thing and... um, why, you know, why are our elected leaders, you know, from Australia as well when I was there going off every year to Davos to meet behind closed doors with the richest people in the world? Yeah. And they're not saying what it was about. How does that work if you're just representing your people in a democratic country? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think this comes back to the trust thing. I think our governments aren't what we thought they were. It doesn't mean everyone in government is bought or is doing the wrong thing, but I think the will of the people is, is only one of many competing priorities. Yeah, well, we've got the depressing um, thing here where the, the current prime minister, who, who doesn't know what a woman is, um, is now he was the, the response minister for all of this, for all of the madness. He's now the prime minister. And, and a lot of us thought there's no way he's, he can do well, given you know what he was involved in and him being the sort of the, the master hand behind it. He's now the prime minister and his poll ratings have gone up and so have the incumbent government's poll ratings. And it looks like they will win again at the election. And yeah. I, I struggle with coming to terms with that. Maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. Um, yeah I don't know. I don't maybe know the, the people like it. I mean, yeah, I mean, Australia had a recent federal election fairly recent where they you know they had a choice between someone who believes in lockdowns and masks and medical fascism or someone who believes in lockdowns masks and medical fascism so <laughs> it's tough. not yeah. it's not that easy to choose sometimes but um yeah i mean a lot of people don't want to admit that they were wrong they don't want to realize they're wrong they're still fearful i, I know people in australia who thought it, everything was chaos in the u.s they thought the hospitals were overwhelmed in the US and if Australia didn't do, you know, lockdown in the way they did, which is way more draconian than here, that they would do the same thing. Now, even New York, they, they hardly anyone ever got on that hospital ship. They, they, the, the overall occupancy, bed occupancy in US hospitals has been down in 2020, 2021. The, Andrew Cuomo in his book said that the New York hospitals were never overwhelmed. New York had the highest mortality and the highest severity rate, you know, concentrated of any Western country or any Western jurisdiction. So, you know, it's, I think people in New Zealand and Australia from watching from here have been massively misled by their media and by their trusted media, the state media. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, the state media, because uh, you mentioned the ABC before, same thing there in Australia. BBC, I believe, had uh, indirectly through uh, some organisation funding from, again, Mm. one of the Gates foundations or or setups. And, of course, our media here um, have have been in the same same realm. Again, is that is that orders from on high? The same people who send the you know the morning phrase that everyone has to use the 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 go to words. Uh, you know, how do you explain that? Uh, yeah, 
I mean, I, I had to rejig a lot of my thinking at the start of this, and you know, I'm fortunate, I guess, in that I'm a you know I'm a public health physician, so I can yeah, and I've worked on epidemics, I worked on the first SARS outbreak, and so on. So as soon as this sort of started, I knew actually something was brewing in December, and then 2019, and then as it's done, I saw the messaging. I immediately knew something was wrong, but uh, you know, I've now been rethinking a lot of what I've thought, not just on COVID, but around climate crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, you know, looking back, I I think I've been programmed for the last 10 years by the media. You know, the the words like, you know, vaccine denier or, yeah, anything denier. Misinformation theorists. Yeah, yeah. You, you hear, you're told someone's a conspiracy theorist and then anything you hear in the future from that person is coloured in your mind, so you're not going to believe it. And you won't look at it just on the basis of what they're saying because they're a conspiracy theorist and we've all been programmed to think if you agree with a conspiracy theorist, you're a far-right lunatic and we don't want to be far-right lunatics. So, So we end up... You know, I think we, we, we've almost been programmed to, to think certain ways. And, you know, vaccines is an example where we, we're programmed to think vaccines are good. I mean, some vaccines work, some don't work very well at all, some are really harmful, some are not, um, like any other medicine. So, but most people just think vaccines are intrinsically good and intrinsically safe. And that, and I think that's because anyone who says you just have to say if someone questions a vaccine, you just say they're an anti-vaxxer. And yeah, yeah, it's that, game that over. There all the time, even though you've yeah, had all your you don't care about their opinions on anything them. anymore. Yeah. You're an anti-vaxxer, even if you've had all of them. Yeah, even if they had all of them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. pretty pretty crazy. All right. Um, we've had a few people on talking about what comes next. James Roguski was, was someone I spoke to. He was, so he'd done a deep dive into the international, international health regulations in the pandemic treaty. Mm. And he was sounding alarm bells. This sounds like the next big move built on everything that's, that's happened and maybe even a logical yeah. outcome of it. Um, and, and, and this is potentially quite scary stuff isn't it? I mean, what sort of thinking have you been doing about those? I know they're separate things, but they uh, they have a common theme, and that is the, of control, right? They control, seek to control people. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, COVID's a, a walk in the park. I think compared to what people would like to do to you. So, um, and COVID is, is just part of a much bigger thing. There's a, a very strong movement to. Um, to make pandemics and health emergencies the sort of focus of society and to control people in order to keep them safe. And so yeah, pandemics are really rare. I mean, genuine pandemics, they're very rare and they hardly kill anyone. So you know, they're, they're, since we've had antibiotics, so Spanish flu is pretty bad in 1918, 19, but then you know, WHO records a a flu pandemic in 1957-58, one in 68-69, they killed about a million people. So that's less than TB tuberculosis killed every year. Um, you know, the swine flu, which they call pandemic, but that killed even less than flu normally kills. And then COVID, which is, you know, 
most people died 75 or 80, and it's really difficult, actually. It's never been so difficult before until now to know who actually died of a disease and who died just Is incidentally that, because, yeah. you know, the, the figures are not reliable at all. And But now, now we're being told the next pandemic is just around the corner. I mean, why on earth would it be? There's one per generation, and they kill far less people than TB or HIV or whatever every year. So... Uh, yeah, this is a false narrative to start off with. But on the basis of this, we are, you know, there's a movement and the international health regulations amendments and the treaty, they, they, they work together. The, the amendment, what they're trying to do with the amendments is to make WHO recommendation binding. Yeah. So countries who don't drop out of this will, will be undertaking to follow the WHO's recommendations. The WHO's recommendation in this case are a single person. It's the director general. Um, he, he doesn't even have to consult a committee. He just decides himself, which we saw with monkeypox. Five people died in the whole world, and he declared a public health emergency of international concern. So making the international health regulations binding will allow him to order border closures, to order um, quarantine, isolation of people, to order... Um, mandated medical examinations, mandated vaccination in any country that hasn't actively dropped out of the IHR. And uh, the treaty, which if you read it, it's milder, but what it's essentially doing is getting the money and the governance and the supply lines to run this whole thing. So they work together. Um, and the, they are talking about $10.5 billion a year additional money Um which, again, you know, it's three times what we spend on the entire World Health Organization every year. So we're building this massive bureaucracy and lots of people on board because this is where global health is going. If you want a career in global health, this is where you go. Um, this is where the money is because it's big money coming into this from the people who made money out of COVID and will make money out of this. So the, the aim is to have intensive surveillance, looking for things like viral variants, which are fine because this is natural. So you're essentially surveilling for nature and you find, oh, there's something, that, there's nature, okay? Nature's an emergency or it could be an emergency. It doesn't have to be a real emergency. Uh, the changes in the amendments make it, you don't have to demonstrate even five deaths. You just have to demonstrate the potential for harm in your opinion, which is one person's opinion. Then you, there's the power to do all these things, lockdown countries, et cetera. So what will happen there? Can I just ask a question? Is, does, yeah. is that all just physical um, pandemics? Because uh, I guess... It's health emergencies. So, and But they could be something psychological, couldn't it? It could be something psychological. And the, the, the definition of health is rightly broad. And the treaty mentions the One Health concept, which is fine. Is that the, the concept of One Health here is that uh, it's anything in the biosphere that could potentially affect health, essentially. So, you know, you could say climate change is an emergency. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking I mean, because it, it's it another people... natural phenomenon. I mean, there may or may not be anthropogenic influences, but climate changing has been throughout human history one way or another. So you call these natural phenomena a potential emergency. And then one person, you're giving one person the power to order what the world should do about it. 
How would you explain that the one person with all the power, surely that, I mean, everyone knows that's kind of crazy. What if that person wakes up on the wrong side of the bed or has taken a a bit of a dislike to a particular group and decides, okay, today I'm going to dot, dot, dot. So then you would hope that your country would say, um, no, we're not going to do that. Um, But the problem is that... uh, the, this person is, you know, very lightly. I mean, he's sponsored by the sponsors of the organisation, these right. private sponsors. So, and they will also be sponsoring your politicians and they sponsor the media who will give the politicians hell if they don't do everything that the WHO tells them to save everyone from certain death. So, as we saw in COVID, so... It, it, it's ex- going to be extremely hard for politicians and governments to withstand this once it's in place. That's like checkmate. Pretty much, yeah. It's really printing money. So you know, they'll find these potential emergencies, they'll lock down. If it's a virus, they'll have a, their 100-day vaccine, which they're working on. Um, and then they'll say, if you have this vaccination, you will, you'll be safe from the lockdown. It's the yeah. only way to get society back on its feet. And Which they know works because it worked before. Yeah, so there's two or $300 billion um, <laughs> taken from the people. Ching, ching. Who, the, the people who are investing in these companies. So as we just saw happened. Um, so it's yeah. not hypothetical. We've just seen it. But this is putting in place a mechanism to make so that this can happen much more often. And not all governments, are, well, hopefully liberal um, democratic governments, there are a lot of authoritarian governments in the world. Yeah, can, including who, in liberal democratic governments. Yeah, as it turns out. But they they would love this, wouldn't they? Oh, yeah. It, yeah, especially as the media then don't hold you accountable for, you know, putting your opposition leader in jail because he's an anti-vaxxer and he should be in jail, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this I mean, human rights have gone out the window. Who cares about... Well, everything's gone out the window. Who who cares about politicians being put in jail now? Who cares about you know I don't know female genital mutilation um, causes like that? The you know, the lockdowns are estimated to have caused between two and a half million and ten million extra child brides, you know, child marriages, which is essentially wow. rape of a child every night. Yeah, this is WHO's policy now. Um, this is what has happened. People, this is where people need to wake up. That these are real numbers. A hundred million additional people in acute um, food shortage, facing acute malnutrition. That, that's a number that we haven't really seen before. But that's the reality of what we've just done. So, where are we going with these pandemic um, treaties? Is to put this in as a permanent thing. Um, it's, it's, you know, COVID evil? has been a public health disaster. Yeah. Is evil the word? If it's result, if it's having those outcomes, yeah. it's got to be. Yeah. For anyone who knows what they're doing, I think it is. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's certainly amoral. There's, yeah. there's no morality there. Um, it's, it's putting personal money in absolutely unbridled greed. Um, coupled with no morals whatsoever. Um, 
The worst of all worlds. The worst of all worlds. Do you think this is all going to fly? How do you? What what do you think the outcome of this will be? I guess it depends. Do you think on the the citizenry of the various countries pushing back, or is that not even enough? Yeah, it it looks like having a good chance to fly. Um, Oh dear. The I mean, there are some countries that. I mean, well, this country is an example of the U.S. where I am that, you know, there, there are parts of the U.S. that probably won't comply very well. Um, there are parts that will. Um, the, you know, the, the, there are politicians starting to wake up about this in a lot of countries. I don't know about New Zealand. I know in Australia there's some. No um, mention at all of it here, David. No, nothing. Right. Okay. There's a few in Australia. There's quite a lot in the U.S. now. Um there in Europe, in the in the EU, even there is you know, which is almost marriage to the West. But the the Parliament there, there are, are quite a few people who are speaking out. I think uh, Christine it, Anderson is one of them, and she's coming on our program next week, so it'll be right. really interesting to talk with her because she's yeah, and that's outside. interesting. I mean, she's you know, she's classes as a, a far right politician, <laughs> um, and a lot of these are, and, you know, it's been interesting for me. I, I mean, I've always voted on the left of politics in my life, but, you know, to, to me, this is far more important. This is about um, the basics of, you know, human freedom, bodily autonomy, etc. This is what we're fighting for, and you know, the, this is where you start to think, you know, all the people that I've been told are far right, are they really far right, or are they just not as controllable as some others? And you know, everyone's doing, they have good and bad opinions. None of us agree on everything. But, yeah, you know, as someone who, is, and, you know, I believe in universal health care and uh, all those things that, you know, lefty things uh, still, and I see myself still on that side of politics if you talk about left and right. But, you know, it's fairly lonely at the moment. But, um, but you know, the, uh, you start to realise that a lot of what you're, you're thinking about the other side of politics is, again, is what has been programmed into you by mm. a very biased media. And, you know, like it or not, most of the people who are fighting for human rights at the moment are from the traditional right side of politics. They're the yeah. ones who are standing up against that's authority, fair. against oppression. They're standing up against, you know, not all of them, but that's generally where most of them are. All right, and uh, you're a physician, so you're a logical person to ask. Trust in in medicine and doctors. I've got to say, mine has been, I'm not permanently smashed on the floor, but I find it very difficult because because I know doctors who have been, had their careers stopped, basically, and, and yeah, um, the, their profession is, at professional body levels has been very nasty to them indeed, like you yeah. wouldn't believe. Um, it seems to be a a profession in crisis. Is there any way back for the medical profession in terms of trust? Um, it's going to be difficult. Um, and yeah, there's precedents for this. If you look at, you know, you have to be careful talking about Nazi Germany and so on. But there are. Yeah, and yeah, things were very different, but there are certain parallels in the way that the population was messaged, etc. Um, it, it was a medical profession that really led that. That you know, 
were the biggest supporters of the Nazi Party. So there is a history, and there's something about the health professions and medicine, especially that people can be prone to thinking they're sort of something like God, and they they have a right to tell other people what to do, and they know best. And um, see, they don't. And I mean, they you know, if you look at the the fraud within pharma, you know, demonstrated fraud within pharma over the last year, the whole allopathic medicine fraternity is, um, you know, the, they're clearly not highly trustworthy as a, you know, as an industry. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of doctors who are speaking out. The majority are not. I think a lot of them are just, they know something is wrong, but they're just waiting for someone else to fix it because they're, they're scared of losing their jobs and, they're also scared of being labelled an anti-vaxxer, which sort of ends your medical career in the eyes <laughs> of your colleagues. Um, I think I think it's probably a good thing in a way because a lot of the stuff that medicine was pushing isn't necessarily the best way to live, um, and people need to question the medical profession more. They need to hear what the doctor says and then decide what's best for them. Um, but, you know, it's also, you know, you look at organisations like the CDC here, which is highly discredited now. And, you know, if we do have a real health crisis, it's going to be a problem because the public, a lot of the public, quite rightly, are not going to really trust these institutions anymore. Yeah, and just, um, uh, you may not know this, but the Therapeutic Products Bill is going through our parliament at the moment, and that seeks to really create an incredibly high bar for the therapeutic products that people have been taking as supplements and, you Mm. know, sort of more naturopathic medicines over a long period of time. And you could argue that that is in a way designed to force those options out of the marketplace by just raising the bar so high that uh, many producers can't uh, meet the requirements, leaving, again, the sort of pharma medicine with with it all. Yeah, uh, people don't realise that the the hepatitis, I only knew recently, you know, I'm a doctor and half the stuff I never knew, um, like around this, such as, you know, the, the, the vaccinations for hepatitis B that we give to babies on their first day. Yeah, the the trials for those were a few hundred kids and with a follow-up of about five days. Um the yeah, the the, the therapy through a freedom of information request, the Therapeutic Drugs Administration Australia has just released their sort of dossier on the COVID vaccines, on for the Pfizer vaccine from February 2021. And you know, there are tables in there that should be, you would think were massive red flags. So there's a table there that shows in every of about 12 or 14 categories of fetal abnormalities in rats, which is the only species they bothered to look at, vaccinated rats. Um, in every category, the rate of fetal abnormalities was higher in the vaccinated rats than the unvaccinated. In the miscarriage rate pre-implantation miscarriage the it was twice as high in the vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated now these figures are there they um they went ahead because although they were sort of double they didn't reach a certain threshold 
which they decided was the threshold we worry in these particular type of rats. So, you know, statistically, it's, it's a red flag. It doesn't <laughs> prove anything, but it's a huge red flag that normally you would, and if this was a you know, naturopathy medicine, you'd say, well, you know, this way we have to do much bigger trials in a lot more animals, and then we've got to look really carefully at people. What they did in this case is they told pregnant women, well, they told women who were thinking of getting pregnant, that this was safe. Full stop. There was no evidence of harm when there were these very significant red flags. Um, so, and, you know, another red flag, and it's in the same document, but we knew from another freedom of information request in Japan, there was a, the lipid nanoparticles that carry the vaccine. They concentrate significantly in the ovaries, in the adrenal medulla, et cetera. Uh, the, you know, the way that the vaccine works, it causes the cells. It's not a normal vaccine. It's not more like a medicine. It causes the cells to produce um, spike protein, which is a toxic protein. They express them on the surface. The body recognises that as foreign and kills the cell. That's how the vaccine works, the mRNA vaccines. If you've got cells such as the ovary in the ovary or any cell in the brain that doesn't reproduce, when you lose those cells, they're gone then if the inflammation, you know, directly or indirectly kills that cell, it's gone. You've got less over, you've got less brain cells. So mm. normally with a medicine like this, you would be incredibly careful um, before you gave it. You know, we know it crosses the placenta, et cetera, to the, to the fetus. You'd be extremely careful. In this case, they classed it, although Moderna called it internally as um, genetic medicine or genetic therapeutic, they classed it as a vaccine and that allowed them to have strangely for vaccines, but they allowed them to have a much lower bar in which, you know, that they had to get across in terms of their pharmacokinetic studies and animal studies, et cetera. So the Pfizer vaccine, they only did the biodistribution, which is where does it go when you inject it in rats um, in two experiments. They, so about 40 or 50 rats, they only did any immunogenic studies in rats, mice, and monkeys. And then they, normally then you go into a series of human trials, stepping up phase one, phase two, phase three trials. So this was essentially, you know, during the phase two trials, they, um, or phase three trials, they put this out for mass use, and then they mandated it. They said, even though we don't have any long-term data on this, even though it's a novel medicine we've never been used in humans before, even though there are these red flags that say that uh, it concentrates in your ovaries and we have you know, red flags in the rat studies um, that didn't reach a certain, certain threshold but were much worse than vaccinated rats. Even though we have all that, if you don't get injected with this, um, you're going to lose your job. And we don't care that you've already had the virus and you've already been, wow. you know, so you're already immune. We don't yeah. care that you're in an age group. And, you know, we knew in, it was published in Lancet in March 2020, that, and there's a good chart there in, from its Verity et al. if um, people want to look up the paper. It's from Imperial College and it shows in the data from China that nearly all severe disease and mortality is in old people. And middle-aged people, young people, are almost unaffected by COVID. So even though we know all that, 
and we have all these red flags, you're, we're going to take your job away if you don't get injected. Um, you know, I, I know some. We have a, I have a friend who has had to have an injection to see her mother who had stage four pancreatic cancer in a North American country. Um, and as soon as she had one injection, she was allowed in to see the, her mother, even though, you know, if it's a vaccine and, and the way it works, you need at least two weeks to get any decent immunity. So this wasn't about her having immunity. I mean, why she needs immunity to see her dying mother, I don't know. But uh, it wasn't about her having immunity. It was about her complying with being injected. And it was health staff who insisted on this and then let her see the patient as soon as she'd had the injection. Wow. So, you know. It's like a ritual. It's it's sort of ritualistic. Yes, it is. And we need to step back and actually think, what do we do? Okay, there's behavioural psychology in this. People were in fear. They weren't thinking straight and all that. But we're facing the potential to have this as a permanent feature of society. That's what people want to do because they've made hundreds of billions of dollars from what just happened. So us ordinary people, we've got to think, is this what, you know, we've got to face up to what happened. There were really, really bad things that happened. And if we can't see that, if we can't see that banning people from going to their parents' funeral, banning elderly people who've been married for 60 years from seeing each other for months and months, you know, if we can't see there's something wrong there, then, you know, we are lost. But We, we, well, we almost kind of deserve it. Yeah, but, um, you know, people got to wake up and just swallow it and say we went insane, but we can't let that happen again. And that's So they, they've got to stop complying. In the end, I think that's how this will be defeated. People just got to stop complying with stupidity and with what's obviously wrong. You know, you, you stop putting a mask on at the door of the restaurant so you can take it off at the table. I don't know in New Zealand, that's what people did here. Yeah, they, they You had to have a mask to go in the restaurant, but you could eat without it. So you take it off when you get, I mean, why would you do that? It's so obviously stupid. Are you really going to spend your life complying with stupidity or are you going to live with a bit more dignity and integrity and just say, I'm not doing stupid stuff just because someone told me to? That's a great note to end on. I really appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with us. It, it's It's been a really interesting chat and uh, we've ranged over quite a bit of it. But I think we need to because, you know, the air has to be cleared somehow, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. people have got to, yeah, they've got to grasp what happened and because it wasn't good. And, you know, there are, you know, outside of our country, there are hundreds of millions of people who are, in dire poverty now, the infectious disease rates are going up. Um, that, that's you know, where the real pandemic starving. come from. Yeah, that's where the real pandemic is. It's yeah. from the response. Yeah, Dr. David Bell, thank you so much for coming on Reality Check Radio. And we'll keep a lookout for, um, I, I know I should advise people that you've just published a piece in the Brownstone Institute. And um, I had a quick read of that. That's um, the sort of, I think uh, speaks to you know how you see the latest situation and uh, the what we've been talking about the international health regulations pandemic, and for those who can't be bothered reading it, it has a an AI voice that will read it for you, which I found very convenient. So thanks for coming on the program. All the best, and uh, maybe we'll catch up again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.